In the 1950s, before there was reggae, before anyone outside of Jamaica had even heard of Bob Marley, the music of Jamaica was dominated by something known as ska. Ska was a fusion of calypso, traditional jazz, and American R&B, and its earliest founders included Prince Buster and Desmond Decker and many others. Ska would eventually influence reggae in the late 60s, but before that would happen, it was all about ska. Remember, this is a time when Jamaica was considered to be a British colony up until 1962 when they finally gained their independence. At the same time, Great Britain modified its immigration laws and it reported 200,000 people would immigrate to the UK from the West Indies, half of which were from Jamaica. Suddenly, the UK was looking at racial tensions that were mixed with the political rhetoric of some of the country's more right-wing political factions who feared a clash of culture from this sudden influx of immigration. In other words... It didn't look that much different than the United States does today. In the 1970s, Great Britain found itself completely hamstrung with a crippling economy, with no jobs, no opportunities, and no prospects, especially if you were young. This is what ultimately sparked the creation of punk rock in the UK, where bands like the Sex Pistols and The Clash were disrupting everything, including the Margaret Thatcher government that did nothing to dispel the notion that there was no future. But punk was only part of the story, because with that large migration, also came the music. Suddenly, ska was becoming not just a part of the black culture in the UK, it was being adopted by the mods and the skinheads. And when the BBC started to play punk singles on the radio in 1976 and 77, there really weren't enough of those singles to play all day long, leaving DJs to fill the gaps with ska and reggae. Suddenly, ska was becoming an inescapable part of British musical culture. And eventually, just like the kids were starting their own punk bands, many of these kids were fusing punk together with Jamaican ska. Ever wonder why The Clash adopted many of these same rhythms into their music? Now you know why. The bands in this movement included The Specials, then Madness, The Selector, and then The Beat. The movement became known as Two-Tone. These were bands that weren't just incorporating racial diversity into the music. The bands themselves were racially diverse as well. And one of the most beloved of these bands was The Beat or as they were known in the U.S., the English Beat. Their three albums, released on their own Go Feet label, became instant classics, Just Can't Stop It, Wappin', and Special Beat Service, with songs like Mirror in the Bathroom, Save It for Later, Twist and Crawl. The English Beat were awesome. In fact, in the 1980s, the English Beat were one of my favorite bands, and their music was everywhere. Remember the scene where Ferris Bueller's running through backyards to get back home before his parents did? The music was rotating head by the English beat. After their final album together, the band splintered into two factions. There was the Fine Young Cannibals featuring David Steele and Andy Cox of the English beat, and then there was General Public featuring the beat's ranking Roger and their lead singer Dave Wakeling. The English beat is back on the road this year after releasing their last album in 2018 called Here We Go Love. In fact, in November, they'll be coming through Massachusetts with The Fix for one show at the Narrow Center in Fall River and another one at the Chevalier Theater in Boston. We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more with my guest today. From the English Beat, it's Dave Wakeling on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How are you, Dave? I'm fine now, thank you. I've even got some clothes on. Oh, okay, shut up, dogs. Sorry about that. It's been a, wow, what a day. Yes, the, it's okay, we're fine. We're fine. It's a friend of mine. They're a, they're a bit perturbed. It, it sounds like an intruder, doesn't it? Well, like I said, I, I appreciate you taking the the, uh, the time. I've I've been a fan of your music for an awful long period of time. You know, college was actually late high school was when the English beat came out, and it's a, and it's it's always been one of these uh, these bands, this kind of music that the the first time you hear it, it's like. Holy shit! What am I just listening to? You because know, you know, us in the states we weren't really, even though ska has some some history with American music, yeah. we didn't really hear that until many years after most of those two tone bands had had kind of run its course. So that's it, right. Yeah. So it came as a kind of ska punk 
hybrid, didn't it? There were quite a few American references in our music. We grew up loving American soul music as much as uh, Jamaican ska, probably more so because um, Tamla, Tamla Motown, as it was <laughs> known, uh, in England was, um, was a really big deal. And as there was only one major pop television program, Top of the Pops, everything that was in the charts, the top 20 or top 10, was on that Thursday's Top of the Pops. So, and it was in black and white. So those golden years, really, of the late 60s, you'd have the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Four Tops and Diana Ross. <laughs> <laughs> All on the same show, you know which was amazing. And we grew up thinking that that was normal. <laughs> you know, we didn't know that things were very different in America. We, the beat, we didn't know until we first came to America the first day in New York. And uh, we didn't like the radio station, the driver in the van. And we said, can you put something on with a, you know, it's like, oh, a black station. He said, a what? <laughs> he had to give us a quick lesson. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And this is kind of true because, you know, you talk about, you know, there being like R and B references in, in your music, but it's funny how over the course of years, how much Americans have learned about their own music by listening to the British. And that goes back to, you know, the, the, the blues in the sixties with, you know, the Eric Clapton, the Yardbirds, and all that. That's music that we weren't all exposed to, even though it was made here in America. Uh, the funniest part of it for me was um, a girl came up to us after a college show in America in 1980, perhaps 81, but, and said, do you know, somebody's already covered your song, Tears of a Clown, but it's really <laughs> slow. You can't dance to it. And she was referring to the <laughs> Smokey Robinson version. Right. She'd never heard it. Uh, for much of the explanation as the van driver gave us, you know, unless you were listening to a, a black radio station at the time, you might not have heard Tears of a Clan. That's absolutely true. At the time, so I don't know to what extent that segregation of the airwaves was complete. I don't know, but uh, it, there was certainly something going on there that. I'm sure if they had enough stations and enough money, they would have arranged similar in England, but you'd only got the one TV <laughs> channel with a black and white show on a Thursday night. So <laughs> sadly, <laughs> they yeah. had to put all the greatest music of the time together for an hour. <laughs> you know, I, I, re I remember uh, taking a road trip when I was in college and it was a 16 hour drive from Milwaukee to come back to Massachusetts. And, and oh, all, yeah. and all I had with me was a, it was all my dirty clothes uh, a couple of bags of Doritos and a fistful of cassettes. And the only cassette that I wound up playing for all 16 hours, a thousand miles was a cassette that someone had made me that had uh, just can't stop on one side and special beat service on the other. And so every time I hear that music or see Ferris Bueller, uh, I'm reminded of the most boring drive I ever had saved, saved by the English beat. So that's like one of those, you know, indelible memories I always have of, of your music. In fact, today I was listening to, to Wappen and just going, my God, I, I just, it was so much fun to listen to it again because I loved all three of those records. And, and they, mm -hmm. they meant a lot to me, even though, you know, it, it, we had never heard that kind of music here in the States. And it was a real breath of fresh air when we did. You know, I think that's why it took us a minute to, to, to break through. You can be underground darlings or college darlings for so long, but after a while, <laughs> you know, most underrated band of the year for the great second year. It's like, oh, I know I wanted to win that twice. Uh, but in an odd way, I think it helped our longevity because the growth of the band in America was fairly organic. I mean, the marketing... Uh, in college radio and uh, independent or progressive radio, whatever they like to call it, new way at the time, uh, in its formative years, uh, it wasn't such a cash cow as top 40 radio, which was not only formulaic in the 
the music that was played, but it was formulaic in the way that disc got to the needle as well. Right. And so uh, really by default, although we were kind of mad that we weren't having the, you know, every time we brought out a single in England, it was a hit. We were kind of getting blasé with it. So, <laughs> so for quite a while, the people, some people in the band were like, I don't think they like us. <laughs> It's like, well, no, I think it's different. No, I mean, we should be number, we should be in the top 10 by now if they liked us. And uh, we realized, really, I think, playing to some early crowds that it was an, in, an unfamiliar beat to some of them. People were a bit uncertain how to respond, what dance to do, how to dance to it. Right. Uh, they would follow Ranking Roger's lead a little bit. And sometimes <laughs> somebody would get it so off that a warning would go around the stage don't look at the guy in the green shirt he'll put you off <laughs> <laughs> uh, but because of that we weren't overplayed at the time you know saturation bombing marketing wasn't really used on us and the songs didn't get burnt out as much because of that and so when they're played now I noticed there's quite a few more of our songs are played now than some of the bands that I was a bit jealous of at the time. Right. That seemed to bang straight up the charts every time they brought something out, you know. So over the long haul, it's probably uh, done us good, at least in terms of the credibility of the catalogue. And that sadly, what we were whining about has become very current again. Well, that's... <laughs> That's the thing. When you read up about, you know, England at the time and you look at, uh, you know, the I mean, the migration of Jamaican music coming to the UK and the racism that had been presented, the political rhetoric that was going against all of it and the, you know, the fear of 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 immigration. It does tend to sound very much like the United States in 2021. And these were things that you guys were dealing with at a young age. It almost makes you wonder what was it about that music and the integration of of racial diversity that made it work for you. I mean, uh, you certainly a diverse you know membership in the band. So did the specials. So did you know the selector. What was it that brought you together at that time? Because you could very easily have continued to be factionalized and and separated by segregation. I think we were terribly lucky coming in after the buildings had all been pulled down by punk and there was clouds of dust in the air that gave you more ways to operate than there ever really had been and record companies particularly were kind of humiliated that to a great extent they'd missed out on punk they dismissed it didn't think it was gonna they can't even play their bloody instruments and they got caught in this kind of stadium vision of things and missed out on a lot of punk groups early on, felt like a little embarrassed because they were meant to be the arbiters and they'd missed the music revolution. So they were eager, (laughs) really (laughs) eager to be first one there. And at the time, really, if you had a full room full of people dancing, there were record companies sniffing around like crazy, trying to make sure not so much that they got in on the next thing, more that they didn't miss the next thing. And because of the shock value of punk, you could get away with singing a song about late stage capitalism and asking the prime minister to resign (laughs) over it. So long as you did it politely, it didn't seem anywhere near as bad as those punks (laughs) who couldn't play their instruments, et cetera, et cetera. As long as revolution Uh, comes with a please and thank you, then that's, (laughs) that's, you're more likely to get stuff done. In fact, I think they were quite pleased with it. It, it. It's remarkable when I think about it now, but the record company not once asked us about the lyrics or ever asked us to mm. change anything, never said, do you think that might be better if you... <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, there's plenty of reason why they could have done and perhaps should have done, because, yes, you can make a political statement, if you wish, ask the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> right, exactly. And they're not necessarily going to bite your head off in public, but there's a good chance you'll get smothered overnight with a pillow. When you talk about the record companies 
missing out on on punk and then all of a sudden you know two-tone comes together you know jerry dammers starts uh you know two-tone records and and you guys start with them too but then you branch out do your own you know record company to me that's another example of them missing a boat a second time another another you know movement out of punk that they completely either missed or got into it too late they learned though because it was really the start of the vanity label you know, we had Go Feet on Arista Records. Right. We used the specials attorney who'd done the two-tone deal. We said, we'd like, without asking, whatever's worked in the two-tone deal without the bits that it turns out haven't. And we wanted the ability to bring out one album and I think three or five singles a year on our own Go Feet label that would be marketed by Arista that we, we could choose which ones to bring out. And that worked okay, but it's still the music industry. And you can tell somebody to bring out a record. <laughs> that doesn't mean they're gonna do anything, you know? And if they're walking in with uh, Whitney Houston on the top of the Arista pile, <laughs> something that you've shoved up and is not gonna be too, too far up on the pluggers list, is it, you know? so. There were things that we learned, but it did give us this notion of Go Feet Records gave us a firewall between us and the label so that if the label had a problem or wanted something musically or artistically, they had to talk to Go Feet Records, which was us. So right. we'd run around the table and be Go Feet Records and say, I'll ask my client, but I don't think he's going to stand for that. <laughs> Run back around the table, ask yourself, go, no, you were right, I won't stand for that. And then call them back and say, go fit records, wouldn't stand for it. And and it sort of worked to a certain degree, you know, mm-hmm. but again, it's the, it's the record industry. So you can try and make them do things, but after they've got bored of doing it, they just stop doing it. And there's really not, nothing you can do or say, is there? You know, right. They're just going to tell you what they... <laughs> <laughs> what they think you'd like to hear before you get off the phone. Or right, some, off you go now then. <laughs> or, or at some point they realize, hey, wait a minute, I think this is them that I'm talking, that we're that we're waiting on answers for. Well, I think as well, if everything's going gangbusters and every song that you're bringing out is banging up into the top 10 or the top 20, and that first album, if you can't, can't get used to losing you, which was brought out three years later with the best of record, but if you count that and double A sides, there were like seven top 20 singles. And so more or less, if you said something, they'd go, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Fantastic. <laughs> Another good one, Dave. The moment you drop below the top 30, it's uh, well, marketing has got a bit of a problem with this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we're all right in promotion, but you're, you're going to need to talk to Steve. When he's back off his vacation. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we must not have gone up in the charts this week. And so, you know, your your leverage wanes. By the time you guys finished special beat service, I think you lasted you know a little bit longer before everything kind of uh, you know factionalized. One of the things that, that I that I noticed in, in researching is take away the you know the racial diversity of, of, of the band. One of the things that I thought was really remarkable is that you guys were diverse in age. I mean, oh. age-wise, Roger was a child when uh, when the band started. And, and well, he was so flipping. tall, we didn't notice. And, and he didn't <laughs> mention it until things started to get a bit official. And all of a sudden then, we, ha- we were going to go, I think, only for a day to Holland for a radio show or something like that. Holland was often the place you'd become a European hit if you'd been an English hit. Right. So, and the chart, the Tipperada, I think it was called, was an important chart that Europe looked to. So we flew over there. We were quite surprised to be meet, met by somebody from the Foreign Office who'd been sent to interview Roger as a travelling working miner to see <laughs> had he had breakfast. Roger said he had. He hadn't. Had he had lunch, he lied again and said that he had. He'd had a, a bag of chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> we 
we were like, what was all that about? And, and we found out that that's how old he was. And that's, <laughs> that's why he'd been collared at the airport. Uh, and, and Saxer, I think, was 59 coming on 60. Uh, hmm. And uh, Everett was about 10 years older than me and Andy, who'd been to school together. So we were about the same age, quite close. And David was sort of between us and Roger. He was still a teenager. So the one thing that was fantastic was there were never any peer group arguments. <laughs> there, was, there was never enough common ground to find one. It's like, well, Saxa thinks differently. It's like, well, I would imagine that's to be expected, isn't it? You know? <laughs> but Saxa, Saxa was old enough to be everyone's father. So, I mean, did you always Older, refer yeah, to him yeah. as, the, as the, 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 the fatherly voice of the band? Well, that and the spirit guide in the uh, in the overproof rum and vodka sense of the word. <laughs> so he was very, very spiritual, but it was an odd concoction. Uh, a pint of Bloody Mary was his uh, trademark drink, actually celebrated in Red Red Wine video of UB40s. If you see one of them sitting in the pub, and it looks like a pint of blood. That was Sax's drink, uh, <laughs> which you before everybody knew because anybody dared ask Saxa, could I get you a drink, Saxa? Yes, man. May I have a Bloody Mary. And as they walked away, go, a pint. <laughs> so you're up for four shots, aren't you, with a pint of wow. blood? Wow. Pints of Bloody Mary. But in the yeah. same time, with uh, with there being no no peer disagreements was was the age gap between you ever a, a problem within the band or or was, did that not happen we didn't notice it we didn't notice it any more than people's color it didn't when we were when we were talking about music or when we were moving socially it was a bit of a funny relationship we're like we'd tease saxa and saxa would entertain us back it was uh, it wasn't normal, really, uh, but it worked. And I don't think anybody really noticed any great difference because we were all so different. Funny, I've never really thought of it till you'd asked that, but no. Uh, <laughs> then again, I was so so self-obsessed. How would I know? <laughs> Who knows what they were thinking? Well, I'm glad after all this time, I'm the one who brings up one unique question to this whole thing. <laughs> Put that in the book. <laughs> One of the things I've always noticed about uh, the English beat, and you know, some people would agree and some people may may not agree. Um, I'm sure there's, you, you you must realize just based on the fact you're kind of playing within the same genre that there are always going to be people that would, you know, prefer the specials. But when, you know, when I hear the specials first album, I hear a record that sounds badly produced, great songs, good performances. But when I hear your albums, they sounded so damn great, all three of them. They sounded perfect, like they were recorded well, they were engineered well. And I think, you know, maybe one of the things that might be like the, the secret weapon of, of English beat was the drumming of Everett Morton, who I think is maybe one of the most underrated drummers ever. A very unique and exciting rhythm. Uh, his signature, <laughs> and he was actually a more a, had been a soul drummer for the longest time uh, before we'd met him. He'd played reggae, but he'd actually been more in R and B and soul bands. And I think that he kind of joined the dots on his reggae beat, so with a four to the floor, so that it, it had a kind of churning continual dance beat, perhaps more in the style of R&B. I mean, I didn't know that at the time. I just liked his drums. And I noticed when he played, his ass left the chair as he was playing it, as he was, <laughs> and it was like he was riding a pony, you know. It was like he was riding the drum kit. And the crowd responded in the same way. Uh, and terribly lucky that we found that beat because it could, it could suit, he could suit my kind of more traditional save it for later pop rock best friend kind of things but he could also 
manipulate what he was doing as he was a bit more experienced than us around the odder bass lines that David Steele came up with, like Mirror in the Bathroom or Twist and Crawl, which are kind of written and played as much in 2-2 time as they are in 4-4. One two 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 and it gives it this kind of dumb throbbing insistence. There's twice as many on beats, although it's the same really. I mean, it takes the same amount of time, but there's an insistence to two two that, and it just fit together really nicely with Everett's kind of preferred the Morton. It's <laughs> more the Morton beat. So we were very lucky there, really. But I mean, very lucky. How many times do you get to say that? Because everybody that we met for the group was the first person that played that instrument. There weren't any auditions. <laughs> we just met the person and we said, well, that sounds okay. Then great, let's see. I'll see you on Tuesday. Uh, and that's what happened throughout. There weren't any auditions for Saxa or Roger just jumped up on stage and wouldn't jump off. Did that for three weeks running. It had become apparent <laughs> that he'd joined the group and it turned out he needed somewhere to live. So I'd won a flatmate. Yay! <laughs> uh, and me and Andy went to a local pub where there were sort of jazz and ska open nights where people would come on and off for sessions on the stage. Uh, and Saxa was often the star of the show would begin some sort of elliptical solo and then just go off on a tangent but command the beat so well that the band had no choice but to follow him now playing in the dark not knowing where he was going to take her <laughs> and he would just be enthralled in seeing if he could throw them off or whether they could keep back and then he'd go back to the original <laughs> song Hooray! and so we asked him if he would play on our single of Tears of a Clown, and he said yes, and that was it. And he was the saxophone player, he played on the record, it became a hit, and he said, this is the band I've been waiting for all my life. There's no way I'll ever leave this group. Wow. We're like, oh, we hadn't asked you to join yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was that settled then. But it was like that all the way through, so I say we were very lucky. But each, at each step of the way, that same degree of what appeared to be luck or good fortune or synchronicity or whatever, it just seemed to fit together. And uh, with the times, as well as you mentioned, with the specials, the post-punk, wow, what's next? Um, society hadn't got any better. In fact, it had got worse than what punk was complaining about. But after four years of screaming, everybody's throat was sore and noticed that they were having to spend a lot of their time very angry doing quite close impersonations of the people that they were opposed to in what seemed to be a very right-wing and authoritarian government and it pushing against them with punk for years and years it started to decay it was just people complaining which isn't a great way to spend what you're going to do Saturday night well, great band that complains about everything it's <laughs> gonna go and watch them cheer me up um, and so our idea was to some of the same subject matter as it was evolving uh, or what was the cause of it in the first place but to mix it up with a hybrid of all of our favorite dance musics and we all had different versions of what we th we thought that meant for me I wanted a blend between the Velvet Underground and Toots and the Maytels, mm. as if the both drummers were playing. Uh, and I, I, I wanted this industrial angst or claustrophobia almost, but with a tropical lilt that reminded us, like reggae reminded me at least at the time, that even though life was hard, it was still a joy in of itself even a life of suffering was still a life of, <laughs> of joy, which you could, I learned from the lyrics of reggae records, you know, right. it became apparent that some of this music wasn't after dinner music. It was instead of dinner music, <laughs> but what? life was still a joy. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to prevail, which was where I thought things were with punk. You can't just 
endlessly be screaming at the empire till your throat's bleeding. Uh, there had to be a better way, and that was what we thought. After the the, the third album, and you, know, you guys continue for just a, a little bit longer, but at, at some point you decide, okay, maybe we've had enough. Is is what you're talking about the kind of I don't know if you're you're talking about a disillusionment of what you know had occurred with punk and then and then with you know two tone ska or British ska, but but ultimately what was it that said maybe we we better stop and and maybe we should look at you know other things to do. Some of it was to do with the. It doesn't really matter how different you might try and be or how differently you approach the the music industry, if you do well, you tend to get channeled in certain directions. And some of that same purism in some of the lads would say, well, we've just turned into a stadium act. And I'd say, yeah, that's great, isn't it? They'd go, <laughs> no, no, that's terrible. I'm like, oh, oh, I suppose so. And, and some of them said, there's more planes than buses nowadays i want to go and walk to the shops for two years and not be this person in a group i just want to live a life and write songs about that and i don't want to be on the back of a bus writing songs about rocking down rock and roll boulevard and we're becoming a stadium act it's it disintegrated really on the basis of that and there was meant to be another record and another record deal and it went on for so long, it became apparent that some people actually wanted <laughs> two years off. And so me and Roger took the deal and became general public. David and Andy took two years off and became fine young cannibals. And we both ended up playing stadiums about three years <laughs> later. <laughs> As you tell the story, I'm thinking, hey, didn't those two bands do pretty damn good on, on themselves? You'd be lucky if the irony is. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I had read that with general public, Mick Jones of The Clash was involved in that early on and, and played on some of those songs in that first record, but then left halfway through. Was there was there a reason for his departure or did, did it just not work out? To, he was never meant, he was never asked to join and he was never meant to join. He, he'd got big audio dynamite in his mind from very early on from leaving The Clash, but we'd become friends whilst we were touring with The Clash. Right. And, and didn't realise we were on the last tour with The Clash and, and I watched the last show standing three feet from Mick Jones at the US Festival. Wow. My mate Mick, from me being... My hero, Mick, five years <laughs> before. Cool. What'd it be like to meet him, eh? And, and there I was. And, uh, but he always had his big audio dynamite or something on that in mind. He didn't lead the clash wondering what he was going to do, I don't think. And as far as I saw it, I could have the best, my favourite guitarist in the world play on my songs. And I only said, just play on the ones you like. I said, don't feel obliged to play on anything that doesn't like, oh, what? Nah, you know, don't work away at something to come up with a part. Right. But just kind of listen through. And the ones that you go, oh, I know I know how to play that one. I said, just play that one, those ones, which I think turned out to be about six or seven songs out of a 10 or 12, whatever. More than half anyway. And I was thrilled with all of it. Um, Roger, I thought, got a bit carried away. I think he, he really wanted Mick to join the band and privately he might have pressed him to do that. But it was pretty apparent. We went down and uh, Mick had got some, some demos and uh, instrumentals and he said he'd got lots of lyrics, but that he was finding he kept going to the same melodies too often and that he wanted a, a set of new melodies to work off and he liked our melodies would we be willing to go down and just after a couple of weeks listening to the demos, just la, 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 anything? He said, he didn't need words. He says, I've got books full of them. <laughs> he says, I'm going to do some melodies. And so we did. And, and I heard some of the melodies, little bits of it, and then worked into something else, little starting points. And, we, and so it, was, it seemed to me a fair exchange. Uh, plus, Mick wanted... Um, a stage carpet for his new band that had to be made out exactly scale 
of an, uh, a soccer pitch <laughs> out of AstroTurf, which was kind of new at the time. Right. Big deal, you know, <laughs> so we did. We brought him that. And I, I was kind of thrilled. Uh, he played a, a couple of shows with us. That was fantastic. I never expected him to join. At, towards the end of General Public's last go-round, Roger uh, played some shows with Big Audio Dynamite, and I think Roger had another go again <laughs> <laughs> to try and get in Mick Jones' band, and that, that didn't seem to work either. So, <laughs> But I, I thought it was perfect, and uh, I would just let him play till he was bored with the song, and then I'd say, try another one then, you know, and I'd just keep switching songs depending on how hot or how cold he sounded or how inventive you know whether he was being inspired by the song or he wasn't and going around like that and then Roger started like uh, Mick could you try something like <laughs> Mick but you are and Mick was a fairly intuitive <laughs> player you know because I mean? you know, he'd play something you go oh that was nice play that again what that bit you played. What did I play? It was really good. I don't know, play it again. Play it back. I'm like, oh, well, I think I'll play that again. He was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you played something. Like, well, that's close. Nothing's, oh, all right. Well, you've got two now, haven't you? <laughs> and Roger started uh, composing pieces, and it's, it started to quickly go downhill. <laughs> as, as the greatest guitar player in the world kept failing time after time. <laughs> to get some part that somebody who couldn't play a guitar at all was humming at them. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, I had to like switch off the mic. And I said, Roger, you know, we might, why don't we let the best guitarist in the world do his bits? And then when he's run out of bits that he thinks fit, I said, you can have a go with him then. (laughs) He managed to finish the session and I think he avoided any more. So one of the things that uh, that that definitely happened with uh, with you guys, whether it's English Beat or or, uh, or 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 general public, is I don't believe that John Hughes made a film in which you guys were not a part of the soundtrack. In fact, I I don't know if he had a contract with the with the film companies that it, it was a requirement. Yeah, and then, and and. And even if there was only a bit of a song, he'd make sure there was a poster on somebody's bedroom wall. It was endless. Um, I got to meet him a few times, and I liked him very much. I went to his house a couple of times, met his kids and his missus, uh, and he had a room, a really long room with a record collection up to the ceiling. I suppose four, five, maybe six albums high. Six albums high, you know? And all the way down the room it was, just full of records and one of them little ladders on wheels as well. <laughs> he said, he said, I always wanted to be a musician. I didn't want to make films. He said, and he said, I put all my records, he said, in the order that I think they work musically. It's not alphabetic. He said, but I know where everything is. Do you want to test me? And I said, of course I do. I said, OMD's first album. He was like, easy. And I, I called a load of records, and he knew where they were and pulled them out. Rain Man, are we? <laughs> so, so, oh, that one's easy. <laughs> Soft sell then. Oh, please. <laughs> um, yeah, it was remarkable. Uh, and he was a lovely chap. And uh, although it wasn't his, the biggest project, working on She's Having a Baby with him, was great fun because we were both having our first child and we discussed the differences when your girlfriend becomes, your wife becomes the mother of your kids. You love your kids like you miss your wife. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And other such rants, you know, mixed drinks and mixed emotions. And um, all change. She's having a baby. And, And we talked about this and then, he was kind of reworked the, the script a bit as he realised that he'd made a film for an older set of people than he'd thought he was making it for. It wasn't the Brat Pack Breakfast Club. Yeah, no, it was, it was, a, it was a different kind of film than, than, than people were yeah. used to seeing from him. It was, it was them a decade on. 
and he realised it whilst it was going on, I think, which was interesting. And so he started rejiggering it and started writing me his ideas for the lyrics for the song. And I wrote back on his letter and sent it back across the Atlantic. And I think we did that like three times. And then we, of course, have no idea where the letter went. Probably <laughs> the same place that the ball at Ferris Bueller course that he gave me <laughs> that I took home and let the kids and the dog play with. <laughs> probably worth more than I could ever have made in a music career. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> in a glass case signed <laughs> by Ferris Bueller. You know, like, please. So, and I lost that. But it was fascinating meeting him. And I was terribly sad when he seemed to die so quickly and unexpectedly. And I'd always thought that we would talk again. That was one of the people where you felt like, oh, well, I do wish I'd kept in touch the last couple of years. Then. <laughs> but, yeah. so I believe he was only in his 50s, you know, and he seemed robust and fun and uh, enjoying life. So I was, uh, it was sad. You obviously lost a couple of people, uh, you know, along the way. Uh, you know, Saxon, you know, died a few years ago, and 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 so did Roger, in uh, yeah. from uh, from brain cancer. What, what was after general public split up? What was your relationship like with with Roger? My my understanding is that there it was it wasn't necessarily an easy run after you know being in two bands with him. And, and I mean, is that accurate or is it uh, is that kind of uh, overstating it? On the surface, we were good friends. Uh, we had both at least said to each other that the past was behind us and that it was reconciled and that Roger even said I was his best friend. But after his death, or as a book came out, it turned out that there were a deal of resentments. Even quite a lot of the things that we said were reconciled were still thorns in the side. Hmm. Uh, not only with me, but with most other people in the group and most of the groups we worked with, it turned out. So it, it turned out that he'd kept a lot to himself and it had made him quite a sadder character than we were accustomed to. The, the Prince of Love and Unity was actually very sad and felt that he hadn't ever really got the shake he deserved somehow and that other people had done better than him and it wasn't fair. And, and kind of told tales on people, which was sad. It was meant to, some dodgy characters really surrounding him, but it was meant to coincide with a tour he was going to come and do in America to kind of win the battle of the beat. There was never any agreement to work together and it had become quite competitive. Uh, this book, I think, was meant to be like uh, the shock troops ahead of the tour to soften up the defences, you know. Uh, but instead he died. It was lung cancer that spread to the brain. I read this really odd thing in psychology today about uh, there's a, a gene that's depressed in people that repress or suppress anger and that it's always there with people with lung cancer, often with people with breast cancer too. But it's one of the signals of it is this genetic depression at a yeah. certain point that is a signal of uh, that seems to go with lung cancer if it's somebody who's been choking stuff down that's what happens he'd looked very unwell for the past three years every time and we always saw each other every time i went to birmingham i went to his house or he came to a show we went to visit saxa together drove around in his car the very last time he came on stage and insisted to the crowd that we were he was my best friend I was his best friend and there was no trouble between us whatsoever but then it turned out well there was a bit really and uh, and that was sad because some of it was true some of it was true uh, talking through something and saying that you're reconciled with it doesn't mean that your heart has actually healed does it he may have been doing his best to feel like it was reconciled and best friends. But when he got sick and pumped to look on the dark side, it turned out he wasn't really. Not with me and quite a lot of other people, which was a shock and a sad shock because he'd gone and there was nothing I could do or say about it. 
So the relationship, it would turn out, was quite different from what I thought it was. And I'm glad I had the relationship that I thought we had. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always look forward to meeting my mate, Rog. There had been some plans to work together, not much, but to do a few shows around the 40th anniversary. And he was quite enthusiastic about it until a few days later, and I think the manager and him had had a bit of a talk, and all of a sudden it was he was not dead set against it. So I thought, oh, well, you've got as many people trying to prevent it as you've got people trying to actually make it happen. And I understood their reservations because if me and Roger started working together on any basis, both bands would be worried about who was going to be the drummer. You couldn't do it like the Velvet Underground and Toots of the Maytals, could you? And, and probably you'd have managers wondering and agents wondering. It would almost be like you're inviting the things that divided you in the first place. Quite possibly, you know. Yeah. And so it was only for really a skeletal set of gigs, like half a dozen in England and half a dozen in America, just to say happy anniversary to the first album. Yeah. That was the extent of it. And also that if you were going to be espousing love and unity, and that the only way we were going to get through this was to work together and forget our differences. What a terrific example of doing it by doing a dozen shows for the thousands of people who have said, can you just do one more? Just one more. Go on, yeah. go on, go on. And so and he seemed quite good with it, but then he wasn't. And then each time I saw him, he looked worse, thinner and grey and yeah. unwell. And he just said he wasn't eating, and I said, you ever had your thyroid checked? You, know, <laughs> you want to go to the doctors with me? No, 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 I'm good. I'm just, I've been working out a bit too much, and just, you know, uh, it didn't look right. So then when we first heard stories that he was unwell, I was like, well, that's not a surprise, is it? You know, that's, he jumped on stage, and he had a lovely coat, one of those sort of duster coats, but a very thin nylon one a black overcoat, luminous, you know. Turns out people wear that because of anorexia, but he came on and I had stage fans either side of my microphone and it caught his coat and it blew it up. And he looked like the Grim Reaper, you know. <laughs> he just yeah. coming towards me. And I, in the video, I could see it. I'm like, oh, hello, mate, who are you? The Grim Reaper. <laughs> I was thinking it had come for me. <laughs> that was the last time. Me and Rog got together, uh -huh. and it'd come for him. So, so. now you're you're back uh, touring again, though. And uh, I've done eight shows. We've done eight shows post pandemic, and so far nobody's got sick. There haven't been reports of any breakthrough infections or any number at any of the venues we've played. They've all been in California. People do take take it kind of serious here. Everybody seems to be vaccinated, or at least pretending they are. <laughs> and everybody wears a mask until it's after the second drink, which I think when <laughs> <laughs> they just keep it under their chin. Right. But he has a nice little blue thing under <laughs> their chin. To, to be playing these songs uh, again after, you know, 40 you know, plus years, and, you know, even though it's just been, you know, a handful of shows so far, it must feel amazing to be one playing after a pandemic but then two to be playing these songs and seeing how much people appreciate them and what these songs mean to yes. people it really does i mean it's been like everybody's first gig you know everybody's overdoing it the girls are <laughs> dancing too hard the boys are drinking too hard <laughs> security are over busy trying to calm down what looks like a middle school party <laughs> got out of hand <laughs> teachers can't cope any longer with <laughs> it's, uh, it's been hilarious um and yes a, a sense of joy and uh a sense of something familiar and a sense of uh association community uh mass consciousness all of that uh, a really lovely feeling tempered of course by the fact that probably everybody in the crowd knows somebody who's not there because of covid or yeah. know somebody who's family member or one of their own family or all of that. We've all, we're all missing somebody. And it would be weird to not mention that. So I do, in the middle of the set, 
right before Doors of Your Heart about how important family and friends were and that there wasn't really much else we could do but dance for the people that were missing tonight. Wow. Who would have liked to be there too, you know? But you've got to take it on board. You can't pretend, hey, it's over. Back on the back on the 80s, sparkly hats. Get your sparkly hats on. <laughs> More hats because some of you are dead. Come on. Yeah, it's, no, it's not quite yeah. like that yet. But anyway, we, we tried to do it as sensitively as we can, and it's gone down well. It's uh, kept the integrity of the songs. Uh, you know, there's no going through the actions or pretending that you're in a different circumstance. We all know where we are and how best to celebrate it, but also showing respect to the, to the people who haven't pulled through, really. Well, I know you got a couple of shows coming through uh, New England in November with The Fix. Indeed. You're playing the uh, the Narrow Center in Fall River, Massachusetts, on November 5th, and the Chevalier Theater in Boston the following night, and then you're at the Waterhouse in Fairfield, Connecticut. So there's going to be opportunities for us, us to see, and I, I, I can't wait to, to see you guys again because it's, uh, it's long overdue to have live music back. It's even long overdue to have the English beat back, too. Well, it, it's, you know, I'm glad we got a few home gigs to get warmed up because uh, after the second gig, my feet were hurting last weekend. So that gig number eight, <laughs> I said, oh, I said, these shoes, I said, I'm not used to wearing a heel. And they're only <laughs> trainers, but they're a bit lifted at the back, you know. I said, it was pushing me down on my toes. My toes went numb. And my girlfriend said, well, you're not used to wearing shoes actually are you for the last year <laughs> and everybody laughed and then she said all clothes <laughs> i realized i'm not oh my god this is more of a transition than i expected you know i've been naked for 18 months shaving every third day you know only if it starts to itch and so suddenly being bushy-tailed and with shoes, with laces, all that. It's like, oh, God, feels like a suit of armor. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I, I do appreciate you taking the time. And, and, uh, and, and again, uh, can't wait to see you in the, in the fall. A real pleasure. Thanks for having me, and sorry to keep you waiting. Not a problem. Thanks. Thanks again, Dave. How was that? Look, if you like the interview, I'd love to hear about it. You can email me at baxrock102.com. Feel free to share it, like it, give it a great review. I appreciate every bit of it. Also, make sure you follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all our regular updates. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.